This is Second Decade Off Topic. On December 16, 1989, four U.S. military officers, two Navy, one Army, and one Marine, left their military base, Fort Clayton, in the Panama Canal Zone, to have dinner at the Marriott Hotel in downtown Panama City. They were in civilian clothes and were not driving a military vehicle. While driving to the hotel, the driver took a wrong turn and wound up in a place called El Torrio, a tough neighborhood in Panama City. Unfortunately, they ran right into a roadblock established by the Panama Defense Force, the paramilitary forces that were essentially the private army of Panamanian dictator Manuel Noriega. When stopped by PDF troops, the officers tried to flee. They hit the gas, but the Panamanian soldiers opened fire. One of the four Americans, Marine First Lieutenant Robert Paz, was fatally wounded. There were two American witnesses to the shooting. A Navy lieutenant, Adam Curtis, and his wife had been stopped at the same roadblock and were waiting for the PDF to check their identification. They saw the shooting involving the four other officers. Immediately blindfolded with masking tape, Mr. and Mrs. Curtis were taken to the PDF headquarters building, the Comandancia. Over the next four hours, the PDF brutally beat and abused the Curtises. One soldier kicked the Navy lieutenant in the crotch repeatedly. It was said for the express purpose of rendering him impotent. One of the soldiers held a gun to Adam Curtis's head. His wife was sexually assaulted. The Panamanians kept demanding that she confirm their belief that her husband worked not for the Navy, but for the CIA. The Curtises were eventually released, perhaps with the intention of their report to American authorities serving as a direct provocation to the United States. It was certainly that. Four days later, on December 20th, 1989, an American force of 27,000 troops, the largest U.S. combat force assembled since the Vietnam War, invaded Panama with the express intention of capturing the dictator, Manuel Noriega. The Paz and Curtis incidents were not the only reasons for the invasion. Far from it. In fact, tensions had been rising between the U.S. and Panama for months. And the day before the incidents, Noriega gave a speech where he said that a state of war existed between the United States and Panama as a result of the various military maneuvers and the imposition of economic sanctions against his country. Since taking office in January, the new president, George H.W. Bush, had on several occasions publicly called upon the Panamanian people to overthrow Noriega. That was easier said than done. Noriega had spent the last six years consolidating control over the country and crushing dissent ruthlessly with paramilitary squads called Dignity Battalions, Dingbats for short, which were called that because their mission was to strip their victims of any form of human dignity. In May 1989, an election was held in Panama, which Noriega rigged to get his own puppet candidate elected. The Dingbats fanned out through the city, beating people up, including the opposition candidates, one of whom was seen staggering down the street, his white shirt completely covered in blood. This image eventually wound up on the front cover of Time magazine in the United States. Panama was a tricky problem for the Bush administration. Noriega had been linked to drug trafficking rackets throughout Latin America, but he had proven very useful politically to the previous administration of Ronald Reagan because he facilitated support for a group of anti-communist guerrillas called the Contras, who were waging an insurgent war in neighboring Nicaragua. The Contras were one of Reagan's pet projects. Aides said he was virtually obsessed with them. Noriega, in fact, had been an asset of the CIA for years, uh, particularly in the 1970s and 1980s. By 1989, though, he was an embarrassment. 
perhaps precisely because American interests had helped him come to power. If there was ever a case of creating a Frankenstein, Noriega was it. It was pretty evident from early in the Bush administration that the new president was itching to take out Noriega, but not everybody was on board. Admiral William Crow, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff in Reagan's second term, was opposed to the idea. He didn't think ridding themselves of the embarrassment of Noriega was worth the American and Panamanian lives it would cost, as well as the inevitable backlash of negative reaction throughout Latin America. Partly as a result of his outspoken views, Crow was replaced as chairman of the JCS by Colin Powell, who would later be Secretary of State under Bush's son. The third member of the triumvirate who decided on the Panama invasion in December 1989 was the Secretary of Defense, one Richard Cheney of Wyoming, and who would, of course, eventually be the second Bush II's vice president years later. Cheney almost wasn't Bush I's Secretary of Defense. The elder Bush had wanted John Tower, former senator who had chaired the investigation of the Iran-Contra affair, there's the Contras again, in 1987. In a pretty stunning move, the U.S. Senate refused to confirm Tower as Bush's Secretary of Defense in early 1989, mainly because Tower had an image problem. He was known for drinking and womanizing, but politically he had also alienated a lot of prominent conservatives in the Senate. Bush nominated Cheney instead. This would prove to be a decision with pretty wide-reaching consequences. At least militarily, the invasion of Panama, which was called Operation Just Cause, went pretty well. American forces overwhelmed the PDF, and despite a few pitched battles in the streets of Panama City, they quickly consolidated control over the country. Noriega fled and sought refuge at the Apostolic Nunciature, essentially the embassy of the Vatican in Panama City, Panama, like most of Latin America, being a deeply Catholic country. American forces didn't dare storm the embassy of the Vatican to go get Noriega. They did the next best thing. They totally surrounded it with troops and military vehicles and decided to wait him out. The army set up loudspeakers all around the embassy and blasted loud rock and roll music at all hours of the day and night. ACDC's You Rocked Me All Night Long and Guns N' Roses' Appetite for Destruction album were said to have been on the playlist. Noriega was still holed up there in the Vatican Embassy, losing his mind on New Year's Eve when 1989 became 1990. The world was going into a new decade. Many people thought 1989 was possibly the most momentous year of the century since the end of World War II. In fact, uh, that fall, the Berlin Wall was opened and numerous Soviet satellite states had collapsed. Just three days before the Panama invasion, a revolution began in the country of Romania, which resulted in the communist dictator of that country, Nicolae Ceausescu, and his wife being shot after a kangaroo trial on Christmas Day. The aftermath of that incident and various other upheavals in Western Europe were still going on while Noriega cowered in his room listening to Guns N' Roses on the last night of the 1980s. The transition of the 1980s to the 1990s was a pretty momentous one. There's a lot to be found in this story that explains how our modern world got to be how it is. And this is why the history of the 80s is important. So join me now as we delve back into that history and consider specifically the question of how the 80s ended. Second Decade is a historical podcast about a fascinating time in history, the 18-teens. 
and how that little study period shaped the modern world. Once in a while though, you gotta spread your wings and branch out a bit. On second decade, off topic, I'm gonna give you some more history that falls outside the parameters of the main podcast. Informal, less scripted, perhaps less serious, off topic is to second decade, what the people of New Orleans refer to as a land yap, an unexpected extra. Hello and welcome to another edition of Second Decade Off Topic. On this show, I usually cover the world as it was in the 18-teens, but in Off Topic I go, well, off topic. Historical subjects outside the second decade of the 19th century. This is part three and the final part of the Jake's 88 special. On January 15th, 2019, my new book called Jake's 88 was released. You can find it on Amazon. In connection with the book, which is fiction, not history, I thought it might be fun to do some off-topic shows that are about history connected uh, to it, specifically the history of the 1980s and why it matters. In the first part of this mini-series, I opened with one of the most momentous events of the 20th century, the little-known last-minute political decision in Detroit in July 1980 that ultimately brought George H.W. Bush to a position of national power. In the second part, focusing mostly on the year 1988, Uh, which is the year that uh, my book, Jake's 88, takes place, I talked about the chaotic state of the world during that year. And in both episodes, I also went into the pop culture of the 80s. And I'm going to do that tonight as well. Jake's 88 is fiction. It's a coming-of-age romance about a young man named Jake, of course, growing up in middle America in the 1980s. Uh, The book chronicles a year in Jake's life, specifically the year 1988. The book is a lot of fun. Uh, please do read it if you're inclined. It's starting to, to uh, get some good reviews. Um, leaving one of those reviews on Amazon, if, if you'd like to write one, would be a really big help in punching it up in the rankings. The historical transition from 80s to 90s is important, and it is reflected in Jake's 88, though kind of obliquely. Though the whole book takes place in 1988, the main character, Jake, who's 16, is acutely aware that he's going to graduate high school at the start of the new decade, in 1990. There's kind of a nascent acknowledgement that the world of the 1990s is going to be totally different than the 1980s. That did, in fact, turn out to be the case. So, therefore, much of this episode is going to be about that year, 1990, It's a curiously overlooked time in our popular consciousness, but so many things were happening that year that would have gigantic repercussions down the road. First, let's finish off the story of Noriega and the Panama invasion. Noriega remained in the Vatican compound for about 10 days. He had to know that there was nowhere he could go. He couldn't get out, and the Pope's diplomats were not going to protect him for very much longer. So on January 4th, after taking Mass and reading Bible stories of men who had changed their lives, Noriega wrote some letters to his wife and then walked outside to surrender to American forces. He was tackled to the ground, his wrists tied, and he was bundled into a helicopter and eventually taken to Howard Air Force Base. The most famous picture of Noriega ever is his mug shot where he's wearing a tan-colored shirt, looking very disappointed and holding up a reader board with the date of his booking, January 5th, 1990. Noriega had been indicted by a federal uh, federal court in Miami in 1988 on numerous charges relating to drug trafficking, trafficking and racketeering. The circumstances of his capture, though, made the legal case against him quite tricky. He'd been captured during a military operation, so was he a prisoner of war? 
in which case the Geneva Convention, not U.S. domestic law, applied. These questions wound their way through the courts over the next two years. His trial began in September 1991. One of the issues was whether his long-standing relationship with the U.S. government, that Noriega claimed the CIA had given him $10 million over the course of his career, uh, anyway, whether evidence of that could be brought up at the trial. Another issue involved Noriega's relationship with Bush himself and both of their roles in the Iran-Contra affair. Ultimately, that evidence was excluded as being irrelevant, and it may have been. The question was uh, really whether Noriega was a drug dealer and racketeer, not whether necessarily whether the CIA and Bush facilitated his rise to power. Nevertheless, the whole issue was pretty embarrassing to the U.S. government. But eventually, they got what they wanted. Noriega was convicted on 8 of 10 counts and sent up for 40 years. He served 17, being released in 2007, but that wasn't the end of it. Noriega had also been indicted for crimes in other countries, including Panama and France. In 2010, he was extradited to France, where he was convicted and sentenced to seven years. Then he was extradited again back to Panama in 2011, and he died in custody in a Panamanian hospital in May 2017. Bush's invasion of Panama was widely seen as being contrary to international law. There was, there was no declaration of war, although the Bush administration claimed that Panama had effectively declared war on the United States. Both the United Nations General Assembly and the Organization of American States passed resolutions condemning the invasion. The U.S. used its veto at the Security Council to block a similar a resolution that was working its way through that body. With all that said, though, the people of Panama were generally in favor of the invasion. In fact, in one opinion poll, 76% said that they wished the U.S. The US had invaded earlier. Uh, fires and looting played havoc throughout Panama City, and about 20,000 residents were left homeless. The government that came to power in Noriega's wake was at least nominally more friendly to the U.S. and certainly less repressive. Part of the stakes of the Panama invasion involved, and you can hear this coming, the Panama Canal. In 1979, President Jimmy Carter had signed a treaty with Panama that provided that the canal, which had been built and administered by the U.S. since it opened in 1914, would be given back to Panama no later than 1999. So having a friendly government in charge there was of great strategic importance to the U.S. and much of the Western world, which depended on the canal for shipping. The 1989 invasion of Panama is often relegated to kind of a footnote in the history of the first Bush administration and the broader history of this period. It was a relatively short operation, big and flashy at the time, but it faded from the front pages pretty quickly. I think, however, that understanding the Panama invasion is key to understanding what happened later. The operation demonstrated that the Bush administration was even more willing to commit to the use of force than Reagan had been, and they were willing to do it for lower stakes. While Noriega certainly was a thug, a bully, and a drug dealer, no one seriously contended that his continuance in power constituted a real threat to the United States, at least not directly. More importantly, the triumvirate of Bush, Cheney, and Powell, which solidified around the run-up to the Panama invasion and how they made military and foreign policy decisions, was vitally important to how a much more consequential event turned out, that being the chain of events that led to the Persian Gulf War. These three guys controlled American military and foreign policy almost completely. 
The only other person worth mentioning who had a seat at the table of the big decisions of the Bush administration was John Sununu, Bush's chief of staff, but his role was purely political. The thinking of Bush, Cheney, and Powell when it came to the use of force was evident from how they crafted Panama. The Vietnam War, which had been over for 17 years, casts a long shadow over this. Panama and later the Persian Gulf operation shows that they believed the real sin of Vietnam was its gradualism. Of course, you know how Vietnam went. Eisenhower put a toe in the water in, 19, in the 1950s with American advisors in South Vietnam. Kennedy upped the game with covert operations. Johnson started with limited airstrikes in 1965, and then a broader air campaign, and then finally ground troops. In contrast, in both Panama and Iraq, the triumvirate opted to use overwhelming force very quickly to smash the enemy as hard and as fast as possible and then get out. This was as much a political strategy as a military one. What this analysis misses, though, is the very big question of why force is being used in the first place, and whether it's worth it. It almost presupposes that a quick, overwhelming operation is likely to result in fewer American casualties, and that, plus the fact that these operations are supposed to be over quickly, is meant to prevent a conflict from becoming another Vietnam, with the long drip of uh, constant U.S. casualties. Was Panama worth it? I mean, politically. The bar of worth it is a lot lower when you're talking about 23 Americans killed in an invasion that lasts a couple of weeks, rather than 58,000 killed in a war that drags on for years. It's kind of cynical decision-making, but this was exactly how the triumvirate of Bush, Cheney, and Powell approached this kind of thing. This decision-making process is documented very exhaustively in Bob Woodward's book, The Commanders, published in 1991, which is probably his best book outside of his work on Watergate. This book was a major source for this episode. Bush and his advisors found that they had considerably fewer restraints on the use of force than previous U.S. administrations had. One reason for that was that the turmoil that was going on in Europe, which was effectively, uh, which effectively took the Soviet Union off the world stage as a big player. The collapse of Soviet satellite states in Eastern Europe in the second half of 1989 was largely a result of a voluntary decision by the Soviet leader, Mikhail Gorbachev, that he would no longer backstop them politically, economically, and particularly militarily. Remember what happened in 1968 when a liberal reform movement got going in Czechoslovakia. That's the Prague Spring. The Soviet Union, then under the control of Brezhnev, crushed the Prague Spring with tanks in August 1968. There was a similar smaller-scale intervention in Poland in 1980, and then, of course, the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan in 1979. All of these were examples of Moscow propping up puppet governments against internal forces that threatened communist rule. Maybe Gorbachev was never interested in playing that game, or maybe he felt, uh, given the economic stagnation of the Soviet Union in the late 80s, that he just couldn't risk it. Nevertheless, although the fall of communism in Eastern Europe in 1989 was a complex series of events, at its heart it was pretty simple. No red tanks, no communist satellite states. Arguably, the USSR didn't need a fluffy pillow of Stalinist stooge countries on its western border in 1989, but where this really started to pinch was when the Baltic republics, Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania, began declaring independence from the USSR in early 1990. Gorbachev did not want to let them go. At first, he used less overt means of retaliation, like shutting off the oil pipelines from Russia to those countries, 
The Baltic states got all of their fuel from the Soviet Union. But a year later, in January 1991, he would resort to military force, at least on a small scale, to crack down on the independence movement. He did the same thing in January 1990 against Azerbaijan. This is referred to as Black January, a violent Tiananmen Square-style crackdown against protest movements in the city of Baku. About 170 people were killed in this event. In both cases, Baku in January 1990 and the Baltics in January 1991, Gorbachev was unable to control events. The breakup of the Soviet Union was well underway. That was a long process, but it was hastened in the late summer of 1991 with a coup by communist hardliners that tried and failed to take out Gorbachev. Then the final dissolution happened in the last few months of that year, ending on Christmas when the USSR ceased to exist after 74 years in power. The end of communist rule in East Germany meant that German reunification was on the table. I really don't have time to get into that subject in any depth. It's a very big subject. Uh, It's important to our later story in the sense that managing the process of the reunification of East and West Germany, George Bush and his foreign policy advisors maybe got a little overconfident at how well they were shaping the world. Hubris, you could call it. Germany was officially unified on October 3, 1990, There were a lot of big ceremonies and fireworks, world leaders singing in front of the Brandenburg Gate in Berlin. You see a video of that event. Those are among the most iconic images of political events in the year 1990. This should have been Bush's crowning achievement because he worked pretty closely with Western European leaders to shepherd reunification through. Unfortunately, Saddam Hussein spoiled the party. To understand the genesis of the Persian Gulf War, you have to understand the subject we touched on in part two of this miniseries, which was the Iran-Iraq War. Saddam started that war in September 1980 to strike against what he saw as the existential threat of Iran's Islamic revolution spreading to his country. He wasn't particularly successful. After eight years of war, which utterly ruined Iraq's economy, a ceasefire ended the war in August 1988 with Iran's regime still in power and Saddam's archenemy, the Ayatollah Khomeini, still alive, though not for long. He would die of natural causes in 1989. The problem, though, was that Iraq was broke. The collapse of oil prices in 1986 hit Iraq harder than any other oil-producing country, mainly because Iraq's economy was already severely disrupted by the war. The war had also strained relations between Saddam and his neighbors around the Persian Gulf, particularly Kuwait and Saudi Arabia countries that in 1988 were very rich. Iraq's government had borrowed a lot of money during the war from these countries, and with his wallet flat, Saddam was having a hard time paying back these loans. For a desperate Saddam, Kuwait represented something he desperately needed, an ATM machine. Iraq did have a long-standing border dispute with Kuwait, and at least by some interpretations, not all, but some, Kuwait had been artificially divided from what was traditionally Iraq, when Western powers carved up the Middle East into its present configuration after World War I. But this was a pretext, not really a cause. The Iraqi invasion of Kuwait was motivated, I think, by just one thing, greed. It's not even really clear whether Saddam thought he would get away with it, but in a sense it didn't matter. If he invaded and looted Kuwait, even if the invasion didn't stick, he'd still have the loot. On August 2, 1990, Saddam struck. Kuwait didn't have much of an army, and as politically audacious as the invasion was, militarily it really wasn't that complex an operation. 
Still, this was the second time in 10 years that Iraq had invaded one of its neighbors. The Iraqis quickly went to set to work stealing anything from Kuwait that wasn't nailed down, and there was a lot to take. Kuwait, a very small, oil-rich country, had billions in consumer goods, securities, precious metals, cars, planes, oil drilling equipment, that sort of thing. I read a book about the occupation of Kuwait. Uh, I can't quite recall the author's name at the moment, but uh, I was amazed at how much of it was just plain old robbery. Truckloads full of stuff were rumbling back through the desert from Kuwait City to the Iraqi border for pretty much the whole occupation. Anything that was valuable, phones, computers, clothes, artwork, medical equipment, food, uh, cultural treasures, you name it. I'm not convinced that George Bush saw the invasion in the way it really was. It's pretty clear that he reacted to it on more of a moral level than many others did. Bush seems to have identified the invasion with the German conquest of Western Europe in 1940, which was happening in real time while Bush was in prep school. At the time of the invasion, early August 1990, Bush was in Great Britain, meeting with British Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher. Thatcher, who got along better with Ronald Reagan than she did with Bush, had used Churchillian rhetoric and Churchillian themes throughout her political career. And I think she amplified Bush's natural tendency to see Saddam and the invasion of Kuwait in these very stark, good and evil World War II-like terms. As for the other members of the triumvirate, Powell and Cheney, I tend to think they were a bit more cynical. The real threat was economic. In August 1990, no one was sure whether Saddam would stop with Kuwait. There was a very real threat that he would pause a while and then move again, this time into Saudi Arabia, which, like Kuwait, would be unable to pose much military threat to Saddam's army, which was something like the third or fourth largest in the world at that time. Saddam, if he kept Kuwait, would certainly help himself to a much bigger share of oil exports. But if he hit Saudi Arabia, he could hold the economies of the Western world for ransom. The first counter-move against him was almost automatic. On August 7, 1990, with the acquiescence of King Fahd of Saudi Arabia, Bush began sending American troops to defend Saudi against a possible Iraqi attack. In this decision, the decision by Bush, Powell, and Cheney to send U.S. troops to Saudi Arabia and Fahd's decision to officially ask for them, in this decision lay the seeds of September 11th. One of the chief grievances that Osama bin Laden had against the United States was the continued presence of American troops, infidels, on the holy soil of the country that contained Mecca and Medina. This was not the chief reason he attacked New York and Washington in 2001, but it was among them. I remember the build-up to the Gulf War. I was in college in Portland, Oregon, and I was just starting to get politically aware at that time. People forget that there were hostages in this crisis. Saddam took a large number of Westerners hostage. Uh, these were people who'd been in Kuwait at the time of the invasion. They weren't just Americans. Uh, many of them were British uh, and other French and other nationalities as well. He eventually released them in December, but for a couple of months, you'd see yellow ribbons around trees and wreaths and such, just like in the Iranian hostage crisis in 1980. It was very strange watching the news or seeing news pictures in the last couple of months of 1990, seeing these vast armies of Americans in desert camouflage, they called it chocolate chip. Uh, anyway, seeing all these troops building up for, well, something. There was a lot of political wrangling, particularly at the UN, but I'm not sure there was ever really much of a chance that Saddam would back down voluntarily. 
The Gulf buildup of 1990 was, I think, really a game changer in American consciousness. This was our first big war, our first truly big war since Vietnam. Unlike that one, though, it was very sudden. It wasn't against communism, and Bush kept promising that it would not be like Vietnam this time. In fact, he even said that in those words, this will not be another Vietnam. The role of Margaret Thatcher in the Gulf crisis is, I think, underappreciated, just as Tony Blair's role in the 2003 Iraq War, the decision to go to war, is also underappreciated. By 1990, Thatcher had been in power 11 years, a long time for a British prime minister. She was adamant that Saddam be set back by force no matter what it took. There was basically no daylight between her and Bush, and nowhere, so far as we can tell, did either of them really ask whether Kuwait was worth it or not. She didn't get the chance to follow through on her Churchillian line in the sand. Thatcher, who, if you believe her advisors in that late period, was growing increasingly inflexible in her thinking, she was fully ready to stand for a fourth general election in 1991, an election that she alone thought she would win. Others in the Tory party, Conservative Party, gradually became convinced that they'd do better with a different leader at the top of the ticket. The only question was, who would it be? On November 14, 1990, a Conservative MP named Michael Heseltine mounted a challenge to Thatcher's leadership of the party. How this played out over the next week is really a fascinating story. Suffice it to say there was a power struggle, like something out of House of Cards, in fact, the original British show, House of Cards for the 1990s, was inspired in part by these events. Thatcher ultimately wound up losing an intra-party election, but it wasn't Heseltine who came out on top, but a dark horse, John Major, who became the next British Prime Minister. Thatcher was pretty shocked at her defeat. She announced on November 22, 1990, that she would be resigning. That day was Thanksgiving in the United States, and George Bush was on that day eating holiday dinner with U.S. troops stationed in Saudi Arabia. Seven weeks after Thatcher left 10 Downing Street for the last time, a multinational coalition of forces led by the U.S., but with significant British participation, launched the air campaign against Iraq. That war was, I believe, truly the beginning of our modern recent history. We're going to change gears now. Uh, just as I did with the previous episodes of this miniseries, I've talked about political and world events in the first part of the show. And now let's talk about cultural history, which is in many ways a lot more fun. Just as 1990 was a fulcrum between two eras of political and world history, the end of the 80s was also a transitional phrase in popular culture in a lot of ways. The 80s seemed in many ways kind of over the top. Everything was flashy and glitzy. Uh, on my blog a while back, I did a series of articles about the most representative movies of the 1980s. The title of the series was Greed and Glitter, uh, which I think represents sort of the mood of 80s filmmaking and also music and fashion as well. The 90s, most of us remember them very differently. The 90s seem much more cynical, kind of darker in a way, or at least less fluffy and insubstantial. The 80s was the era of Michael Jackson, Cindy Lauper, and E.T., the 90s was the era of Nine Inch Nails, Pearl Jam, and the internet. Huge, huge difference culturally. Cultural tastes were also beginning to atomize in about 1990. By that I mean throughout the 80s, at least in the U.S., there was much more of a unified consensus about what our culture was, what was popular, what people talked about and liked and thought was important. To a large degree, this sort of consensus came from television. 
Throughout the 1980s, there were still only three major networks, and cable was just starting to make inroads. I find this test very telling. Can you name the major U.S. TV network news anchors from the 80s, most of the 80s at least? Everybody watched Walter Cronkite on CBS News until he retired in 1981. But for most of the 80s, you had Tom Brokaw on NBC, Peter Jennings on ABC, and Dan Rather on CBS. After the transition to the 90s, news, television, and just about everything else began to fracture into an array of niche interests. In 1990, you didn't have to watch Brokaw, Jennings, or Rather. You could watch CNN on cable. If you were tired of uh, getting tired of ear candy top 40 radio pop, in 1990, you started to have a different choice. Hard rock and heavy metal was reaching the peak of its mainstream popularity at that time, and Alternative was about to explode with Nirvana in 1991. I think that a hugely important piece of understanding the cultural fulcrum between 80s and 90s comes from understanding how television changed. In the last two years of the 80s, but particularly 1990, we suddenly saw the advent of what you might call the satirical family sitcom. Roseanne, which I talked about a little bit in the last episode, that premiered in 1988. This was a family sitcom, but it was focused on working class families and a much grittier cultural and economic reality than the more traditional family shows of the 80s, like The Cosby Show or Different Strokes, which focused mostly on rich people who had more or less perfect lives, until it was time to deal with a social problem on one of those dreaded, very special episodes. Roseanne, by contrast, was about a real family with wise-cracking wise kids and family members in constant conflict. Then you had Married with Children on Fox, a show I really, really did not like, but was a pretty consistent hit from when it premiered in 1987 and it ran throughout most of the 1990s. Married with Children, or The Bundys as it was informally known, was even coarser and more working-class oriented than Roseanne. The lead character was a shoe salesman. The teenage daughter was a ditz whose very appearance was intended to be irritating. The Bundys was a terrible show, at least in my opinion, but it did tap into a wholly different cultural vibe than the sitcoms of the 80s did. Then, at the very end of December 1989, came the one ring to rule them all, so to speak, when it came to satirical family sitcoms, The Simpsons. The show was piloted by some animated shorts that had aired on The Tracy Ullman Show, but it became a series in its own right on December 17, 1989, incidentally only three days before the U.S. invasion of Panama. I'm really not the right person to talk about The Simpsons. It's a show I don't watch. I've seen maybe four or five episodes of it in my entire life, and it astonishes me that it's been on the air for 30 years. That alone should tell you, though, what an incredible cultural impact it's had. Family sitcoms, invented primarily in the 1950s, were a cultural force throughout most of post-World War, World War II American life. The paradigm of the family sitcom was the Donna Reed show, and its apotheosis was Leave it to Beaver, which ran from 1957 to 1963. Mainstream television quite deliberately sought to imitate this form in the 1980s, not merely with shows like Cosby and Different Strokes, but by literally rerunning these old 1950s family shows in time slots aimed at nostalgic adults. Nick at Night on the cable channel Nickelodeon built a huge following doing this. The Simpsons was the Hiroshima bomb that destroyed the traditional family sitcom. Bart Simpson drove a stake through the heart of Donna Reed and even Archie Bunker, the character from the 1970s show All in the Family, 
which was kind of like the original Roseanne, but which still belongs more to the early era of family sitcoms than the wisecracking, almost surrealist, satirical hijinks of Bart, Lisa, and Homer. Not to make too much out of it, but the advent of The Simpsons was, I think, a major part of that transition from 80s culture to 90s culture. The world was never the same after the premiere of the show. When it eventually goes off the air, maybe in the year 2050, the epitaphs for the show will probably speak more eloquently about its cultural impact than I can do here. Let's talk about movies now. I've talked about cinema in each of the previous two episodes of this miniseries. 1990 was kind of a strange year in cinema history. Again, a transitional year from the greed and glitter films of the 80s to, well, something different. I graduated from high school in 1990, just as Jake does, well, as he's scheduled to do in my book, Jake's 88. Uh, My first job out of high school was as a counselor for a kid's day camp. The kids I had were about six or seven, and I remember the stuff they were into that summer, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and Dick Tracy. I remember seeing lunchboxes lined up on the shelf in our homeroom, the kids' lunchboxes, and every single, every single one was either Ninja Turtles or Dick Tracy. The story of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movie is actually an interesting one. The Turtles were a cultural property that came out of the 80s, comic books first, actually a series of fairly dark and gritty underground comics first published in 1984. Then it became an animated TV show in 1987. The idea to do a live-action movie was probably inevitable. But it was audacious. The Turtles themselves, guys in rubber suits in true Hollywood tradition, were made by Jim Henson's company, which had done the Muppets. Henson said that doing the Ninja Turtles was the most complex challenge of his career. Tragically, it was also one of the last things he ever worked on. Henson died in May 1990, shortly after the film came out. He died of toxic shock syndrome. The film was an indie production. All the major film studios turned down the chance to distribute it, which is pretty surprising considering that it had built-in cachet given the popularity of the comic books and the animated show. And it wasn't that expensive to make, $13.5 million, the equivalent to about $27 million today. Not exactly a shoestring, but on the cheaper side of the Hollywood spectrum. Eventually, the largest of the independent studios, New Line Cinema, took the picture. New Line had built itself into a powerhouse in the 80s with the Nightmare on Elm Street movies. Though it got terrible reviews, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles raked in $201 million at the box office and was, at the time, the highest-grossing independently distributed film in history. Dick Tracy also has an interesting backstory. Based on the comic strip from the 1930s, Warren Beatty, one of the few auteur directors still left in Hollywood at the end of the 80s, had envisioned a Dick Tracy movie as far back as the 70s. The picture went through more than the usual twists and turns, green lights and sentences and development hell throughout the next 15 years. Although it finally got moving in 1988, one of the major blockbusters of the following year, Batman, set the stage for it. In fact, especially the way it was promoted and marketed, Dick Tracy almost appears to be a 1930s Batman, made with a similar stylistic flair that Tim Burton had used in the 1989 version with Michael Keaton. Beatty wanted Dick Tracy to look like the comic strip, and it does. You see almost nothing but primary colors in the movie, particularly bright yellow, fire engine red, and deep black. This is a pretty bold choice from an artistic standpoint, but it's extremely demanding on the audience. 
it's kind of a chore to watch this film because you're seeing the same colors on the screen, exactly the same colors, over and over again. Madonna, the iconic 80s icon, got her chance to do sort of a film noir-ish role. She appears as Breathless Mahoney. Uh, Madonna's film career is an interesting one. She did really well in 1984 in Desperately Seeking Susan, but her career misfired in the later 80s. Shanghai Surprise and Who's That Girl were both bombs, so this was her chance to get back into the movies. If you're a regular listener of You Must Remember This, the film history podcast by Karina Longworth, which is a great show, by the way, she has an episode early in her series uh, on Madonna, which focuses a lot on the making of Dick Tracy. I highly recommend it. It's a couple years old, but it's really a great listen. Dick Tracy was released by Disney under its Touchstone banner. The marketing campaign was based pretty explicitly on the Batman model. One of the main features of that marketing campaign was a tie-in with McDonald's. No better way to market something to young kids than to push it to them through fatty and unhealthy food. When you figure in the gargantuan promotional budget, which was more than it cost to make the actual movie, Dick Tracy was about a $100 million piece of merchandise. It recouped that cost, but Disney was disappointed that it didn't come anywhere close to Batman's $400 million gross. Critics were divided over it. Uh, Beatty wanted to do a sequel, but Disney wasn't interested, and when he and Disney began suing each other over rights to the film, the notion of a sequel became pretty much impossible. Among movies actually aimed at adults in 1990, there's one in particular that has stood the test of time, and in fact stands head and shoulders above any other film made in that year. I'm talking, of course, about Martin Scorsese's Goodfellas. Goodfellas is almost inevitably compared to another iconic picture that came out that fall, Dances with Wolves, which was far more financially successful. Wolves uh, grossed $424 million and was the fourth biggest movie of 1990, whereas Goodfellas didn't even crack the top ten. Wolves won a bunch of Oscars. Goodfellas got only one Best Supporting Actor for Joe Pesci in the performance of his career. But Goodfellas is definitely a classic. It's one of the most quoted, most talked about movies of the last 30 years, and its reputation now as the best gangster film ever made uh, even better than the Godfather films, is pretty much universal. Incidentally, if you're interested in the historical accuracy of Goodfellas, which was based on the true story of gangster Henry Hill, I highly recommend the episode on the movie from the History by Hollywood podcast, uh, which is one of my favorite podcasts. Check it out. Uh, the guys uh, on that show uh, go very deep into the uh, backstory behind Goodfellas and comparing it to source material, particularly uh, the book Wise Guy by Nicholas Pileggi, uh, which was the basis of it. Goodfellas was filmed in the summer of 1989, mostly in Queens, where the picture takes place. It was a labor of love by Scorsese, who was able to use a lot of techniques and tricks that he learned from French New Wave cinema of the 1950s and 60s. Shot for a $25 million budget, the film spent a long time in the editing process. Editing is really key, especially to its pacing and Scorsese was contractually obligated to give it previews. There's a lot in Goodfellas, especially its pacing and intensity, which audiences had never seen before. In fact, in the preview screenings, numerous members of the audience walked out. The film's depiction of coke-fueled mob violence was just too much. Scorsese took it as a sign that he was doing something right, and in fact, in subsequent edits, after the test screenings, he tried to make it even more intense and frenetic. Goodfellas is definitely a film of the 1990s. 
its unsparing, unsentimental look at the mafia lifestyle, its intense performances, and the wall-to-wall pop and rock music soundtrack seems to look forward into film history rather than backward. If Goodfellas had been made in 1980, or even 1985, it would have been an entirely different movie, and probably a much lesser one. The 80s were not capable of giving us Goodfellas, but in the transition to the 90s, the world was already changing. Jake's 88 came out on Amazon on January 15th. It's available in both ebook and paperback formats. Please read it, and if you like it, leave a review on Amazon or Goodreads. That really helps. You probably already listened to the Second Decade main podcast. I'm sure that's why you're here. Uh, as usual, if you like the show, please do click on those little stars on iTunes. Five would be very nice, and leave us a review. You can become a patron on my Patreon page. That's patreon.com slash seanmunger. I have a public Facebook page, look for Sean the History Guy, and I have a new online class that's uh, coming out on March 24th called Presidential Places. Um, So you can sign up for that class. Uh, It's going to be a lot of fun. Sorry, I don't use Twitter anymore, but I do have a YouTube channel, and you can find some videos there uh, on various historical topics. Anyway, thank you for listening, and have a good evening. The theme music for Off Topic is called Stealth Groover by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com, licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0 license. Saving money on exterior wall lights. Now at Menards. Find your style with Patriot Lighting. Exterior lights enhance the look of your home. Choose from over 50 options from Patriot Lighting. Now through May 19th, get $10 instant savings on a single qualifying purchase of $100 or more on in-stock outdoor wall lights. Check out our entire selection of outdoor lights and see the rest of our deals happening now on Menards.com. Save